If you have a Bible near you, I will be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. If you're able and can stand with me, I would appreciate it. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 down through verse 11, although we won't cover all of that this morning. I will at least have the setting. So if you could stand, I, I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting verse 1 down through verse 11. The Apostle Paul here, writing to the church established in the city of Corinth, says this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray together. Father, as Alex mentioned this morning, this is a portion of Scripture that elicits much praise and at the same time can generate so much criticism. So, Father, this morning we approach it humbly. I pray that we would approach it truthfully. I pray that as we study through and understand uh, this topic of spiritual gifts, that you would give us uh, much discernment, much wisdom, Help us to stand on truth and to understand what truth means in relationship to how you gift people in your church. We love you. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. We find ourselves at a fascinating point, really, in this book to the uh, Corinthians. Paul starts off this verse in this this chapter by saying now concerning and every time he does that in this book you know that that is his his uh cue that he's getting ready to start a new topic he's he's bringing up a new subject and the one that he's bringing up at this point is the one of spiritual gifts this topic is one that they happen to ask about some of the things that he's talked about in this book he sort of brings them up they need to know it they need to have some corrective um, direction in their life but this is one that apparently they ask him about and so he brings it up and he says now concerning uh, this thing that you ask me about this this thing called spiritual gifts and he says in verse 1 now concerning spiritual gifts brothers I do not want you to be uninformed this topic of Spiritual gifts is one that is both sensitive and controversial. Even Paul understands this, and that's why he starts off this chapter by saying, now I want you to understand brothers, and you could rightly interpret that brothers and sisters. Uh, He uses that term brothers and sisters to 
somewhat soften what he's getting ready to tell them. He understands that this is sensitive and, and the sensitivity, the controversy over this particular topic hasn't changed since Paul wrote the letter. Uh, anytime that there is an, an expression of a spiritual gift, either privately or publicly, uh, often it has become the center of intense debate. And so this is no small topic that we're getting ready to, to delve into here. This idea of spiritual gifts and, and the height of the spiritual gift uh, movement was probably no more profound than in the mid uh, to maybe late 1900s when the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement was, was at its height. And while I believe that a lot of those movements started off uh, in, with the right motives and with the proper constraints, far too often we saw them um, sort of explode into these almost bizarre and unbelievable uh, circumstances and just odd expressions and, and fantastic stories uh, of what was happening inside of these circles. Some of them may be uh, more commonly known and, and maybe more um, broadly uh, criticized movements were some of them known as uh, the Toronto Blessing, which took place uh, in the city of Toronto, and it was characterized by what was known as laughing in the spirit, and, and people were supposedly being blessed in the spirit and would begin just laughing uncontrollably, falling down in the aisles and just laughing. Um, there was the... Uh, Brownsville Revival, or some of you may know it as the Pensacola Outpouring, uh, in which participants were slain in the spirit. And, and that became a, a very popular thing in that particular movement where um, crowds of people or multiple people would just sort of fall over uh, at, the, at the command of, of the leader as he um, would slay the people uh, in what he called a slaying of the spirit. Probably most recently uh, in the city of Florida was the Lakeland Revival, which focused on divine healing. Uh, and people were coming and being healed of various things, uh, at least uh, that was what was reported. And, and so there's no shortage. If you look around, at least in the recent past and uh, into the uh, 1980s, of uh, examples which would elicit extreme praise from some, and ex extreme criticism from others. There, there's lots of these kinds of movements. Sometimes movements try to outdo other movements. And while the whole of the charismatic movement has been on a significant decline, at least in, in the past decade, uh, there are remnants of that movement that still exist, and there are, are questions that exist in our minds. Some of those things that we've seen and heard in our recent past or see and hear on television uh, in some of the gifting of the spirits, questions like, is it of the Lord? Is it legitimate or is it of Satan? Do we believe what it's all about or is it some kind of a hoax? How do you tell the difference uh, when somebody is, is supposedly operating in a gift of the spirit? And who am I to say anything uh, that that is not the spirit when it's happening right in front of my eyes. I can, I can see something happening. How do I discern that? How do I make sense of that? I remember one incident that took place in this church uh, several years ago. Um, it wasn't a Providence-sponsored event, but our building was, was used to host it. And the worship leader that night um, was an individual um, 
who I, I'm convinced was determined to sort of uh, pull everybody into an emotional high uh, as she led the singing. Uh, in an effort to exhort that emotion, she uh, encouraged the congregation to stand and to jump and, and to clap. And all the time she kept looking back at the soundboard operator um, who she brought with her and kept saying, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. The volume kept continuing to get louder and louder. She herself was jumping around on this stage and uh, refusing really to to shut down the music time until she felt like uh, that the crowd was, was at its height where she wanted it to be. The volume was absolutely ear-splitting to the point that I got up and, and went into the sound room and, and instructed them to, to turn it down. It was just simply too loud. Well, that evening ended... Uh, with a group of six to eight ladies. They were just kind of standing right over here and they were all praying in tongues uh, simultaneously. Um, No one was interpreting, but they were all uh, praying in tongues somewhat loudly. Um, How do you evaluate a setting like that? How do you make sense of that? And was it the discomfort that I felt, was that because I was just unaccustomed uh, to worship like that? Or were the feelings uh, that were informing my mind, um, were they biased by my background? Maybe I, I just wasn't used to this. See, these are all questions that we ask, and not because we want to be judgmental, but because we want to know the truth. We want to know if we're standing in the truth. I've got to know what is the criteria by which I judge my experience, what's going on around me. How do I evaluate whether that experience is right or wrong? How do I evaluate whether this is from God or from something else? How do I know those kinds of things? These are the kinds of questions that we'll be asking and that we'll be hopefully answering from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14. Paul lays out three chapters to talk about this idea of spiritual gifts. I think it's something that's important. I think it's something that we need to understand. We need to be rightly informed We need to be biblically discerning and we need to exercise the proper use of whatever gifts God has given us uh, as individuals and as a a congregation. So I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to these next uh, three chapters. I titled this morning's sermon Concerning Spiritual Gifts. It comes straight out of the text, straight out of of verse uh, 1. And I'm anticipating uh, that from verse 1 down through verse 11 that there's going to be three parts here. Uh, We're going to go through uh, verses 1 through 3 this morning, uh, and then hopefully we'll have two more parts, and then we'll be into Christmas, so we'll have uh, three Christmas sermons, I think, somewhere in there. So um, this is our goal uh, for the next month or two. Three things that we're going to learn this morning. These are in your message notes. We'll go through these. Number one, we're going to see how the Corinthians were elevating certain gifts above others in sort of their sad display of pride that has existed throughout this entire book. That's number one. Number two, Paul is going to address and make reference to the pagan worship practices of the Corinthians past and how they're allowing that to infiltrate the church. It's interesting as we read that. And thirdly, uh, we're going to see how Paul instructs the Corinthians to evaluate certain 
utterances that were taking place in the church, certain things that were being spoken, he wants to teach them how to evaluate those and how to know uh, on what pedestal they stood. Were they from God or were they from something else? So those are our three uh, goals as we go through our text this morning. Let's first of all define what spiritual gifts are because we, we throw those words out there as if all of us know, but let's at least make sure we understand what spiritual gifts are. Well, first of all, spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents. Many of us in this room are born, probably all of us are born with different natural talents, skills that we use. Some of us are skilled in singing. Some of us are skilled in writing. Others are skilled in athletics. Uh, You can be skilled in a number of different things. These are natural talents that God has given you from your natural birth. It's just something you were just sort of born with. So uh, spiritual gifts are not the same as natural gifts. Spiritual gifts are supernatural gifts given to you at your spiritual birth. You get natural gifts at your natural birth. You get spiritual gifts at your spiritual birth. And spiritual gifts are those things that are given to all true believers uh, to be used in the exercise of ministry within the body. Now, it's interesting to note as we go through and study different spiritual gifts, uh, and maybe you'll be sitting there thinking, I wonder what my spiritual gift is, and, and you'll be evaluating those. Just know this. Every spiritual gift was fully exemplified in Jesus Christ fully exemplified in Jesus Christ. If you have the gift of mercy, know that Jesus displayed mercy perfectly. If you have the spiritual gift of wisdom, know that Jesus Christ was the epitome of wisdom. He was the wisdom of God. If you have the spiritual gift of hospitality, know that Jesus Christ was the most hospitable person that ever walked on the face of the earth. Your gift that you receive is a gift that Jesus Christ had that you are to explore and, and, and display so that you look like Jesus. And while every spiritual gift is given to individuals, no spiritual gift is to be used individualistically. Glance down, if you will, at verse 7, and you'll see this. Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. You are given a gift for the common good. The gift that you receive is not just for your own personal edification, for your own delight, for your own mean to worship God, but it is given for the common good. It is to be used in the body of Christ. Think about it this way. When you were saved, you were saved to serve. You were given a gift by which you can use to serve the body of Christ. There is no such thing as a Christian pew warmer. Whatever gift you were given is given to serve others. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is not something that you just sit back and watch it happen. Christianity is an engagement with the body of Christ using your gifts to glorify him. So your gift was given for the common good. Now, over the next few weeks, we'll look at some specific gifts of what they are and how they function. But just know that for now, if a believer fails 
to use his or her gift, the whole church suffers. Why? Because the church needs you. The church needs that gift. As Alex said earlier, the team needs you. There's no one person who can do it all. There's no one group of gifts that covers everything. It takes all of the gifts, all of the people functioning. So the church needs you. How do I know what my spiritual gift is? How do I discern that? How do I know what the Spirit has given me? How do I exercise that in the body of believers? Again, all of these kinds of questions we'll be answering over the next three chapters as we study through. So let's understand why Paul wrote this letter. And we have to understand this first based upon the abuse that the Corinthians uh, were using their gifts for. It's obvious if you read ahead and you go into chapter 14 of this book, you'll find that the Corinthians viewed the showy gifts, the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. They viewed those as higher spiritual gifts than others. You know, based on our study of this letter, that this church was characterized by pride. And one of the things that pride does is says, I want to be out front. I want to be noticed. I want to be above all others. And so the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy were those gifts that were out front. Those were the ones that everybody noticed. You don't always notice gifts of hospitality, for example, because those happen in the background. Those just are sort of there and you never really see the people. But somebody who has a prophecy stands up and gives that prophecy to everybody. Someone who has a tongue stands up and and speaks in tongues and everybody hears. Those are considered the, the showy gifts. And so those gifts in the Corinthian church had become an exercise of evaluating oneself against others. If I had tongues or if I had prophecies, then I was higher spiritually, at least in the Corinthians' mind, than you over here, if you just had the gift of mercy or if you just had the gift of hospitality or wisdom. So the Corinthians began evaluating one another and saying, well, I'm obviously more important to this body than you. And pride is sort of, sort of taken over. Now, in Paul's assessment of this church, because these Corinthians were valuing the gift of tongues and prophecies and they all wanted those gifts, Paul's assessment was, your church has become chaos. If you would have walked into the Corinthian church, you would have noticed a bizarre event taking place. You would have noticed people speaking in tongues over here, maybe tongues happening over here. You would have seen somebody standing up saying, I've got a prophecy, I've got a prophecy. And in the middle of their prophecy, somebody else is jumping up, interrupting, and another prophecy is taking place. It would have been loud. It would have been a little confusing. It would have been a bit bizarre. There was no order. There was, there was no uh, waiting for one another. And so it's no wonder that later in Paul's discussion of this, Paul has to say, God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. Another time he tells them, all things should be done decently and in order. The scene in this church would have been just plain weird if you and I would have walked in. We wouldn't have been able to process it. And some of those feelings that I had with the event that I related to earlier, I'm sure would be the same feelings we would have had when we walked in that church. We were just, our minds are just trying to process what's happening here. It was a bit chaotic. And so Paul says in verse 1, 
Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. In other words, I want you to understand. I want you to be discerning. Paul does not want the Corinthians to be ignorant of the proper use of spiritual gifts and to display certain gifts as sort of a badge of superiority over others. No, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Your gift was given to you to serve your fellow believer. It's not to elevate you. It's to serve others. Now, this church is unique in the sense that the very first chapter of this book Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you do not lack in any spiritual gift. They had them all. Every spiritual gift outlined in scriptures was possessed by believers in this church. And yet, there were two that they wanted, tongues and prophecy. And Paul says, you don't lack in any of them. The problem is not a lack of spiritual gifts. The problem is your pride is set in, you're elevating one another, and your high regard for philosophy, your high regard for wise words, which was the Greek pattern of of esteeming someone, he says, that pride in wanting others to think that you are a wise and magnificent person is destroying the use of gifts in your church. So Paul is telling them, is it any wonder because of their pride that they went after the two showy gifts? Paul says, elevating yourself is not the point. The point of spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be uninformed, is for you to use that gift for the common good. That's Paul's point. Now secondly, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to elevate one another, elevate yourselves against one another. But I'm also concerned, Corinthians, that you're bringing some of the experiences of your past into the worship setting. And some of the things that you were accustomed to as pagans, you're allowing that to influence the way you worship as Christians. Now, recall that these Corinthians were coming out of a pagan system where a plethora of gods was worshipped. You had the sun god, you had the moon god, you had a god of the crops, you had a god of sex, you had a god of prosperity. Anything that you could name, anything you could attach, anything with value, the Corinthians in their pagan worship before they came to Christ, they had a god for it. There were temples set up all over the place for worship of these various gods. And sadly... This false worship, this, this worship of all, this, all these forms of deity had its roots in what were known as the mystery religions. It was mysterious. It was, it was mystical. And believers in mystery religions had sophisticated rites and rituals. When you would have went into the temples of these pagan gods and goddesses, you would have seen their sacrifices to make penance. You would have seen feasting, fast. You would have also uh, seen starvation. You would have seen uh, self-mutilation. There were all kinds of things happening in the mystery religions that characterized the Corinthians before they came to Christ. A lot of that worship, that false worship, 
led to unbridled sexual behavior. And in their unbridled sex, they found themselves, at least in their minds, worshiping this god or goddess in whose temple they found themselves that morning. Perhaps nothing was more characteristic of mystery religions uh, is, is than what was called ecstasy. Ecstasy. John MacArthur gives us some helpful background on the meaning of ecstasy, and I quote, Believers in the mystery religions sought to cultivate a magical, sensuous communion with the divine. They would do almost anything to get themselves into a semi-conscious, hallucinatory, hypnotic, or orgasmic spell in which they believed they were sensually in contact with deity. Some used wine to assist in the euphoric experience, as Paul implied in Ephesians 5. Whether from literal intoxication or emotional exhilaration, when worshipers fell into a state of euphoria, it was as if they had been drugged. They assumed they were in union with God. The worshiper would get into a state where his mind would go into neutral and his emotions would take over. The intellect and conscience would give way to passion and sentiment and emotion. This was ecstasy, an intoxicating condition of euphoria. Ecstasy might be induced by vigil and fasting, by tense religious expectancy, whirling dances, physical stimuli, the contemplation of sacred objects, the effect of stirring, pounding music, the inhalation of fumes, revivalistic contagion, hallucination, suggestion, and all the other means belonging to the apparatus of mysteries. One ancient writer speaks of men going out of themselves to be wholly established in the divine, to be enraptured. As the mystery worshiper experienced such ecstasy, he was lifted above the level of normal and ordinary experience into an abnormal sense of consciousness. This was the background of the Corinthians. They were used to worshiping and trying to reach this point of ecstasy. And they would use whatever means possible whether that would mean inhaling things, whether that would mean drinking things, whether that would mean dancing and pulsating music, whatever it took to get them to this point where they felt like they were communing with the divine. That was their pagan past. Now we know that when the Corinthians went in to worship, they would go in to worship an idol. And we know based on chapter 10 that those idols that they worshiped were nothing. The idols were mute. If you look at verse 2, he says, you were led astray to mute idols. They were speechless. They were dumb. They couldn't do anything. But we also learned in chapter 10 that behind every idol stood a demon that did have power and that could produce aberrations and feelings of ecstasy. And when these Corinthians in their pagan mystery religions went into these temples, the demons were literally leading the Corinthians astray. It was though the demons would put their power on the Corinthians and coax them into these feelings of ecstasy. When Paul says, by the way, in verse 2, that you were led astray, 
those words led astray, they're in the passive sense. It's as though the Corinthians lost control of themselves and the demons would just sort of pull them into the worship and they would find themselves there worshiping in what ultimately became satanic worship because it was powered by a demon. The temple worshipers were passive. They, they had no control in one sense over what was happening to them. And this force upon them, this demonic lifting them into ecstasy would bring them into this rampant sexual behavior, drunkenness, and these feelings of communion with the divine. When the Corinthians would leave those pagan temples, it was as though they felt like they had been lifted out of themselves. They were used to that. That was typical. That's what they were accustomed to. Feelings of no pain. Feelings of nirvana. So is it at all surprising that when the Corinthians come into the Christian way of life, when they become saved and they begin and they they form this church, is it not surprising that they would bring some of those same feelings and emotions with them? In fact... To come into the worship setting and to let everybody take turns, this guy does a prophecy and then we all listen, and this guy does a prophecy and we all listen, tongues, whatever, it would have felt a little bit boring compared to what they were used to, compared to the ecstasy that they felt from their past. You mean we just all have to sit here? Is that what this is about? And so it's not surprising that what began as a good use of spiritual gifts began to move toward this idea of ecstasy. And Paul says, I want to remind you that in your past when you were led away, you were led away to mute idols, but you were led away because you were under the influence of demons. Now the Corinthians, I think, are beginning to realize something's wrong here. Something doesn't make sense. You know, what started off one way now looks very different. And so I think when they penned their letter to Paul and they asked him about spiritual gifts, they were asking him things like, is this right? I mean, when we come together for church, what should we be feeling? What should the setting be like? How should we be worshiping? When we look around, how do we discern what's coming from God and what's coming from our pagan past. How do we make sense of this? Paul wants to set the record straight. And he says, quite honestly, Corinthians, if someone walked into your church right now, they would find something that's unhelpful, confusing, and certainly not from God. Paul says, if an unbeliever, later in chapter 14, he says, if an unbeliever would walk into your church right now and see what is taking place, the utter chaos, he would look around and he would say, these people are mad. These people are crazy, out of their minds. And Paul says, what was meant to be a witness to the unbelieving world, these gifts of yours, has turned into a disrespectful cesspool of irreverent and uncontrolled behavior. By the way, I would just add something here uh, about this idea of being out of control. And the Corinthians were out of control. It, it It was chaos. Anytime that you see out of control behavior taking place, 
whether in Corinth or in the church today, you should clearly know that that is not from God. Being out of control of one's body is never a Christian's use of his gift. When someone goes out of control, when somebody goes into a trance, or when somebody faints, or somebody is slain in the spirit, or somebody speaks in a static language, or exhibits frenzied behavior, that is never from God. Never. They are reflecting a pagan style of religion in which ecstasy, experience, was the emotion of the day. I say that because of this. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control. If a person has no control over their body, then it cannot be from God. Somebody says, well, they're simply being slain in the Spirit. And I would say, well, they may very well be slain, but it's not in the Spirit. For two reasons. Number one, you never read anywhere in Scripture ever where someone was slain in the Spirit does not exist. Number two, the Spirit of God does not operate the gifts of the Spirit when people are out of control. It's never from God when that happens. It might be the power of suggestion. It might be a hypnotic thing. In some cases, it may be a demonic thing, but it is not from God, I can assure you. It's important to note that a believer is always in control of himself when the Holy Spirit is working. Self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The situation in Corinth had gotten so out of hand, it had gotten so bizarre that people were actually cursing the name of Jesus while under their supposed spiritual enlightenment. Look at verse 3. Watch how absolutely crazy this has become. Paul says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's hard to imagine that someone would actually say in a Christian setting, Jesus is accursed. It it just goes to show you how out of control and how indiscriminate this church had become. In the midst of the frenzy, in the midst of the chaos, a person would stand up and say, Jesus is accursed. And someone else would say, oh, brother, you must be on, I can see it, you're under the Holy Spirit, you're enjoying the ecstasy, amen, you preach it. It's hard to imagine that could ever happen. It's hard to imagine Paul would ever have to pin these words. Because the words, Jesus is accursed, are the strongest words that you can use to pronounce damnation on a person. It is though the person is saying, Jesus be damned. That's the words that they're using when they say, Jesus is accursed. It's hard to believe that that's happening. So Paul had to explicitly say, no one speaking in this spirit ever says, Jesus is is accursed. It does not happen through the Spirit. And if it does happen, it is certainly not of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the very opposite is true. Jesus is not accursed. Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord 
except in the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, let's be clear about something. Anyone can voice the words, Jesus is Lord. I can walk up to a person and say, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks if you say Jesus is Lord. He says, Jesus is Lord. I hand him 50 bucks and he goes his way. It's not the words that Paul is necessarily talking about. It's the words followed by obedience to Christ. No one can say Jesus is Lord and then disown him, disobey him, disrespect him. That can't happen. Paul says, if somebody says Jesus is Lord and it's happening in the Holy Spirit, you will see a marked obedience in that person's life. That is the indication. A citizen in the Roman Empire once per year was required to take a pinch of incense and and go to the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. The Christians would never do it because they never would acknowledge anyone as Lord except Jesus Christ. That's why the early Christians were persecuted. They denied Caesar as Lord, and they said Jesus Christ is Lord. It was the definitive test by which you knew if a person was loyal to Christ. If he says Jesus is Lord, he knew that his neck was on the line. He wouldn't say it unless he was moved by the Spirit and there was an obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The first test of the operation of any spiritual gift is its connection with the authoritative revealed word of God. The Corinthians were out of line. Why? Because what they said did not agree with the teachings of Scripture. When they said Jesus is accursed, that was clearly not following the authority of Scripture. They they were out of line. When somebody comes along and says, I have a word from the Holy Spirit, if it agrees with Scripture, it isn't necessary. And if it doesn't agree with Scripture, then it isn't right. Satan is constantly trying to counterfeit what is valuable and what is right. And he knows that Jesus Christ is valuable. And if he can counterfeit some experience, if he can counterfeit some feeling, some emotionally driven ecstasy to, in which a person can say, Jesus is accursed, then he knows he's got him. So anytime a spiritual gift is exercised, in particular prophecy or inspired utterances, how do you know if it's right or if it's wrong? Well, it's only right if it agrees with Scripture. It's wrong if it disagrees with Scripture. The Corinthians should have recognized this. They should have immediately discounted the person who stood up and said, Jesus is a curse. Why? Because they knew the teachings of Paul. They knew the teachings of the apostle. And when they heard that, they should have been wise enough and discerning enough and knowledgeable enough to say, that doesn't match with what Scripture teaches us. We deny that. You're wrong. For the Corinthians, sadly their worship experience had become just that, experience. It was about the emotion. It was about the heightened sense of feeling like you were communing with the divine. And they had disengaged their minds. They had disengaged their knowledge. 
And a result of that was this church was beginning to worship and say things that were false and that were wrong. For Paul, it's all about the Spirit of God revealing the truth of Christ Jesus, resulting in the highest praise of Christ. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't disengage the mind. Don't turn off the mind when you come together for worship. You must be discerning. The role of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Christ and to pursue experience at the expense of truth is to risk the very denial of the Son of God. Every experience, every prophetic word, every story must be weighed against Scripture. There's no other foundation. Everything else is sinking sand. Scripture is the only foundation that we have. Don't disengage your brain. Now, some people will tell me and have told me, Sean, I think you're trying to take all the emotion out of worship. I I think you're just trying to make it boring and, and emotionless. Well, that is not at all what I'm trying to do. In fact, a scripture talks often about worshiping God with joy and with fullness of heart, with song and praise. Emotions play a large part in how we worship God, how we, experiencing, how we experience Him. All I'm saying is that emotions must be kept in balance with truth. Let's not fall into the error of the Corinthians and base our judgment on what feels right, but let's base our judgment on what is right according to the Scripture. And by the way, Um, If you saw, there's an insert in your bulletin. Um, Our Bible conference this coming February is about this exact thing. How do feelings and faith intersect? What is the proper use of emotions? Now, there's so much more that can be said about spiritual gifts. So let me just conclude this way. And we'll we'll come back to this uh, next week. The truthfulness of Scripture says this. You and I are sinners. We're separated from a holy God. The truthfulness of Scripture says that on Christmas, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into this world, and we're going to be celebrating that here in a few weeks. He was born as an infant, and he grew into a man. Scripture says that he lived a perfect life, and Scripture says he was without sin. Scripture says that he died on a cross for you and for I. He took that punishment on himself, punishment that you and I deserve. He took on himself. He died a brutal death. And he rose three days later. We call that Easter. We'll be celebrating that in the spring. And he rose again, proving that the wrath of God was over. Anyone who comes, anyone who believes, anyone who repents of his sin and by faith trusts in Jesus Christ and says, Jesus Christ is Lord, can be saved. That's the gospel message. It rings true in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago. It rings true today in Montgomery and Washington and all the surrounding area. Satan is trying to counterfeit that. Satan doesn't counterfeit anything that isn't valuable. We don't counterfeit anything that's not valuable. You don't see people counterfeiting sticks or counterfeiting candy wrappers. You counterfeit diamonds and you counterfeit money. You counterfeit what's valuable. Satan counterfeits what's valuable. And so just know this, he was at work then, he's at work now. 
And so part of what Paul is encouraging us and part of what we'll be learning as, as we continue to study this is how to be discerning, how to tell the counterfeit from the truth, how to tell what's godly and what's not, how to use our minds as they interact with our emotions to bring us to a place where we worship God in spirit and in truth. Truth. That's our goal. I look forward to studying this because I want us to be biblical I want us to be discerning. I want us to be forthright as we understand and measure these things that we call spiritual gifts. 